All right, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to get started and we're going to open with a word of prayer. So let us pray. Father, we thank you for this time together tonight. We thank you for this opportunity to gather in your name and to study this remarkable book. Lord, we pray that as we look at this book and Lewis's words, we would be reminded of the truths of your scripture and that we would be equipped to be able to live boldly for the gospel in a culture that is seeking after darkness rather than light. We pray that you would be with us this evening and ask your blessing on us in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, as usual, we are listening to something that is gloriously beautiful, and I'm wondering if anyone knows what this is. This is one of the most notoriously difficult treble solos that there is. I was reading something from an English firm that said if they were, if you were looking to hire somebody courageous, find somebody who was a treble who had sung this solo. Hmm? Nope. that's from? <laughs> no, no, that's a very good guess. It's Samuel Sebastian Wesley. And just if you want to feel bad, that's an 11-year-old singing. Yeah. So it is, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ by Samuel Sebastian Wesley. It is a text right out of 1 Peter and is unbelievably relevant for what we're going to be talking about tonight. So we're going to come back to that later on. So um, it is something that is truly beautiful. So uh, let me see if I can get this pulled up. And there it is, wonderful. So let's begin with saying our verse together. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, 
but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, I don't know what you all may be doing for your Advent devotionals, but it struck me the other day how really appropriate this verse is for Advent. So it's a great one to meditate on as part of your Advent devotions. So for those who are new, we get new people every week, either in person or on our live stream. Uh, welcome. We're glad you're here. Three ways you can approach this class. You can be on the beach, which means you basically just show up when you feel like it and you don't do anything else. You don't read. You may not even pay attention. Um, that is perfectly fine. I'm delighted to have you on whatever terms you want to come. Or you can snorkel. You can pay attention and go deep on the parts you like. Or you can scuba dive, which means you go and check out all of the links that I send in the email, and you read the articles and the handouts and the scholarly essays, and you read the book and all of that. And whatever one of those levels, God bless you. So I'm just delighted to have you. If you are not on my email list, and particularly if you're on the live stream, uh, please Google St. Philip's Church Charleston and send me an email, and I'll get you added onto the list so that you get our weekly summaries and resources. So that hideous strength, uh, we are moving very slowly, in case you haven't noticed that. Um, we're not even halfway through, really, chapter one. Um, I've realized I'm going to have to speed up. I love this book so much I could teach it for five years, but I'm not going to do that. So um, I would encourage you, if you haven't read chapter one, um, and you're snorkeling or scuba diving, please go ahead and read chapter one and chapter two um, so you can chew on that a little bit over the holidays. This will be our last class for 2021, and we will pick up again January 12th. Um, but keep an eye on your email because I usually send some good Lewis tidbits over Christmas that I hope will be a blessing to you. Um, also, I would really encourage you, if you haven't done it, make a chart of characters Trying to figure out who's who in this book is a little dicey sometimes. And think about, since you suffered through abolition of man so faithfully with me, um, look for where those themes show up. So we are going to move into a little bit of review. So remember in Abolition of Man, we talked about in that first chapter, Men Without Chest, how important objective value is. And that subjectivism, thinking that it's all your opinion and everybody has their own truth, that is the death knell of civilization. Um, we talked about why natural law is the only source for all value judgments and the idea that man's control of nature is really a means for some men to control other men using nature as their instrument. And then we talked about how deconstruction eliminates all value and beauty and truth and goodness. So the Ransom Trilogy or the Space Trilogy or the Sci-Fi Trilogy, whatever you want to call it, uh, three books, Out of the Silent Planet, Ransom, again, Lewis is always playing with names, Ransom, uh, theologically loaded word, Ransom is kidnapped, taken to Mars to be a human sacrifice, he escapes, he makes friends with the archangel of Mars, he learns about this uh, cosmology of the planets, that each planet has an archangel who communicates with God, and there's order and beauty except for Earth, because the archangel of Earth fell, just like the story of Satan in the Bible, um, and became known as the Bent One. And so Earth is now in this cosmos called the Silent Planet, because it's the one that's broken off communication with God. So then Paralandra is uh, the name Lewis uses for Venus, 
And that book is essentially a retelling of the story of Adam and Eve as if the fall did not take place. And it is beautiful. But of course, as the old song says, into each life some rain must fall. Um, Weston, the evil guy, uh, manages to get into Paralandra and starts trying to turn it toward the bent one. And so then this last book, That Hideous Strength, is set in a university. And it is uh, an interesting mix. You've got university politics and academia uh, in a way that is so just very like right up to the moment of what's going on in our own culture. Um, You've got a little bit of the King Arthur legends in there, and you've got spiritual warfare all going on at the same time. And this big organization called the NICE, the NICE, has come to Edgestow, this beautiful, old, venerable university town, and the nice is coming in. And no one really knows exactly what the nice is going to do yet. We'll find out more about that later. Uh, But it's coming. And they are interested in the old wizard Merlin and the lore about him. Uh, We have this character, Mark Studdock, who is a sociologist. Remember we talked about Lewis was not a big fan of sociology. Sorry if we have any sociology majors out here. He didn't think it was a real discipline. So um, that's why he made this guy a sociologist. And he is a fellow of this college that has no students. All they do is sit around and think great thoughts and get paid for it. And uh, we talked a little bit about that last week. So basically what's going on, we haven't gotten to much of this deep heaven part yet in the story, but just keep it in the back of your mind. The bent one is the archangel of earth, essentially Satan, who's gone wrong. Eldela are angels. Oyarsa are like archangels now, um, as the old solar word for humans. And the old solar language is like the logos um, in the prologue of the Gospel of John, or at the beginning of the book of Genesis. It's this powerful, creative word that is imbued with all sorts of creative purpose. So we talked about the title coming from that hideous strength, a poem about the Tower of Babel. And then we had a little quotation from George Orwell's review of this book from 1945. That's one of the handouts tonight. I printed out the entire review that Orwell did. It's quite fascinating, or at least I think it's fascinating. Um, You may not, but it's there if you would like to see it. Um, And Lewis tells us in the preface, this is a tall story about devilry. And that's really important. Lewis is talking about devilry. He's talking about the devil and demons, that there's spiritual warfare going on trying to seduce us, and that it is subtle. Um, We talked about some of the characters, Jane Studdock, Um, who is the um, unhappy wife of Mark Studdock, um, a frustrated uh, career woman. She is trying to finish her doctoral work on John Donne, but not having much success. Francois Alcasson is an Arabian uh, radiologist who poisoned his wife and was sentenced to death, and uh, he was beheaded. Jane sees that happening in a dream, and then is shocked to discover that her dream is on the front page of the paper with a picture of this guy who had just been beheaded. 
Um, Merlin, the wizard, hasn't shown up yet, but he will. Um, Mark, we've talked about. Subwarden Curry is essentially the dean of Bracton College. He pretty much runs things. He thinks the nice marks the beginning of a new era. Because obviously, having years of history in this university is worth nothing, and you might as well just throw all that out in order to be progressive and up-to-date. Lord Feverstone, um, a.k.a. Dick Devine, who was a sleazy businessman who managed to buy a peerage, um, is in league with Weston as one of the great villains of the story. Arthur Denniston is a friend of Mark's that's going to show up later. The Dimbles, the Dimbles are people that Jane Studdock knew when she was in college. They're very hospitable and kind. She loves their house. It's been a place of refuge for her. And they live in this cottage right next to the wall of Bragdon Wood. So last, uh, their chapter one has these different parts. So we've started off seeing Jane alone in their house, bored, thinking marriage is a kind of a letdown and a fraud. Um, and we see Mark um, moving up professionally, being invited to dinner by the dean and thinking he's getting in with the in crowd. And we looked at a couple of themes there, the disembodied head, um, this guy whose head has been pried off in her dream, just like in Men Without Chest, there's a head but no chest. Um, talked about real science versus things like sociology. Um, gender roles, which are going to come up more and more in this story. Um, and the inner ring, uh, that essay of Lewis's that was in the materials that if you're scuba diving, please read it. It is really excellent. And it's all about that desire that starts when you're on the playground, that we all have to be in the end group, and how pernicious that is and how it can wreak havoc in your life. So then the next part of the story, uh, which we worked on last week, is we talked about the fact that the college has been presented a proposal to sell Bragdon Wood. And Bragdon Wood is this beautiful, ancient, walled garden that is the heart of this college. And the college um, has maintained it, and the reason the college is there is because of that wood. And Merlin's Well is in the middle of it, or at least what's reputed to be Merlin's Well. The Nice, how could you not like the Nice? Such a nice name. The Nice has made a generous offer to help this college deal with its finances by paying a huge price for Bragdon Wood. And it is a new organization that fuses the power of the state and the laboratory to create a place where thoughtful people can create a better world, because we know better than you what you need. And at this meeting, the college bursar is played by the people in charge uh, to say that the junior fellows, there's not enough money to pay them a salary. Well, that's bad news if you come into this meeting and you're a junior fellow. But there's a solution, because if you sell Bragdon Wood, then they'll have so much money that not only can they pay you, but they can give you a raise. So if you're a junior fellow, what are you going to vote for? Self-interest. And so, of course, the old guard, i.e. the people that have been there that understand, that love this place, 
and realize that this wood has been part of the college since 1300, don't think that it should be lightly sold off. But during the meeting, there's a lot of doublespeak going on, and that is what we are going to explore uh, more this evening. So after that meeting in the college, the scene switches back to Jane's house, and she's bored, she's not able to focus, so she decides to go shopping. So she goes out in the village, and she's shopping, and she meets Mrs. Dumble, who invites her home for lunch, and she's really glad because she's being haunted by this dream. And so she goes, and they have this lunch in her beautiful ancient cottage you know, next to the river with the ancient wood. It's just beautiful. And they're having this conversation, and Jane is starting to feel better. And then all of a sudden, Dr. Dumble comes home, and he starts talking about Merlin and these stories that maybe Merlin was going to come back to life one day, these legends that he would come back to life. And that if he did come back and he were speaking, that the language that he spoke would probably sound something like Spanish. Well, at this point, Jane almost passes out because when she had her dream, first she's horrified by this head being pulled off a body, and then the head morphs into this old bearded, druidical-looking guy who's sort of groggy, waking up and speaking what she thinks is Spanish. So she's very upset by this. And so she tells the Dumbles, sort of not really having planned to, she tells them about her dream. And then she immediately says, do you think I should go and be psychoanalyzed? Which is quite a window into where her mind and her heart are. And they say, oh, no, no, no. But there is someone we might suggest that you talk with. So. Uh, we talked last week about that passage where Lewis walks you through the gate of the street into the college through all of these different parts of the college and is this pilgrimage into the Holy of Holies. And we talked about the beauty and the order that is just all over this framework. And Lewis references Inigo Jones twice, which is for Lewis like pounding us over the head, like, you should figure out who Inigo Jones is and why I'm talking about him. So we talked about Inigo Jones last week, um, the first significant classical architect um, in the early modern period in England, the one who brought the concepts of Vitruvius, who's the great uh, Roman uh, architect. They understood proportion and all these things that we're going to get to later on when we talk about architecture. So. Um, tonight, we are going to talk about the devilry of bureaucracy and doublespeak. So doublespeak, and I notice I misspelled with a double I in definition. I'm doubling everything. Um, the doublespeak definition from the Oxford English Dis Dictionary, deliberately euphemistic, ambiguous, or obscure language. Doublespeak is the complete opposite of plain and simple truth. For example, if a pharmaceutical company said something like, there are some minor side effects when they should clearly be stating this drug may cause a heart attack, they're using doublespeak and communicating in a deceptive manner. So one of the great themes throughout this book is doublespeak. And you might have noticed that this is very relevant in our particular cultural moment. Uh, I don't know if you can see this little cartoon, but it's a bunch of slaves 
carrying a big billboard that says, things are great. And then we have a little quotation from George Orwell. Political language is designed to make lies sound truthful and murder respectable and to give an appearance of solidity to pure wind. Yes. So um, I'm going to read a couple of passages out of this first chapter. And you'll notice that there are certain passages in the passage that are underlined and bolded. We're going to come back to those. So just be noticing those as I read. So remember, we are in the faculty meeting. It's sort of like the senate of this college, the leaders of the college who don't really have the power to decide, but they um, have the appearance of having some power. So this is, um, in some ways, kind of an exercise in futility that they're even talking about this with them, because the leaders of the college are going to do what they're going to do anyway. So they're having the business meeting. The most controversial business before the college meeting was the question of selling Bragdon Wood. The purchaser was the NICE, the National Institute of Coordinated Experiments. They wanted a site for the building which would worthily house this remarkable organization. The NICE was the first fruit of that constructive fusion between the state and the laboratory on which so many thoughtful people base their hopes of a better world. It was to be free from almost all the tiresome restraints, red tape was the word its supporters used, which have hitherto hampered research in this country. It was also largely free from the restraints of economy, for, as it was argued, a nation which can spend so many millions a day on a war can surely afford a few millions a month on productive research in peacetime. The building proposed for the NICE was one which would make a quite noticeable addition to the skyline of New York. The staff was to be enormous and their salaries princely. Persistent pressure and endless diplomacy on the part of the Senate of Edgestow had lured the new institute away from Oxford, from Cambridge, from London. It had thought of all these in turn as possible scenes for its labors. At times, the progressive element in Edgestow had almost despaired. But success was now practically certain. If the NICE could get the necessary land, it would come to Edgestow. And once it came, then, as everyone felt, things would at last begin to move. Curry, that is the dean, had even expressed a doubt whether eventually Oxford and Cambridge could survive as major universities at all. Three years ago, if Mark Studdick had come to a college meeting at which such a question was to be decided, he would have expected to hear the claims of sentiment against progress and beauty against utility openly debated. Today, as he took his seat in the solar, the long upper room on the south of Lady Alice, he expected no such matter. He knew now that that was not the way things are done. It was not called the sale of Bragdon Wood. The bursar called it the sale of the area colored pink on the plan which, with the warden's permission, I will now pass round the table. He pointed out, quite frankly, that this involved the loss of part of the wood. In fact, 
The proposed nice site still left to the college a strip about 16 feet broad along the far half of the south side, but there was no deception for the fellows had the plan to look at with their own eyes. It was a small-scale plan and not perhaps perfectly accurate, only meant to give one a general idea. Now remember, Bragdon Wood is miles long, so they have 16 feet. In answer to questions, he admitted that unfortunately, or perhaps fortunately, the, wall, the well itself was in the area which the Nice wanted. The rights of the college to access would of course be guaranteed, and the well and its pavement would be preserved by the Institute in a manner to satisfy all the archaeologists in the world. He refrained from offering any advice and merely mentioned the quite astonishing figure which the Nice was offering. After that, the meeting became lively. The advantages of the sale discovered themselves, one by one, like ripe fruit dropping into the hand. It solved the problem of the wall. It solved the problem of protecting ancient monuments. It solved the financial problem. It looked like solving the problem of the junior fellow's stipends. It appeared further that the nice regarded this as the only possible site in Edgestone. If by any chance Bracton would not sell, the whole scheme miscarried, and the Institute would undoubtedly go to Cambridge. It was even drawn out of the bursar by much questioning that he knew of a Cambridge college very anxious to sell. The few real diehards present, to whom Bracton would, was almost a basic assumption of life, could hardly bring themselves to realize what was happening. When they found their voices, they struck a discordant note amid the general buzz of cheerful comment. They were maneuvered into the position of appearing as the party who passionately desired to see Bragdon surrounded with barbed wire. When at last old Jewel, Canon Jewel, a retired clergyman and professor, when at last old Jewel, blind and shaky and almost weeping, rose to his feet, his voice was hardly audible. Men turned round to gaze at, and some to admire, the clear-cut, half-childish face and the white hair. But only those close to him could hear what he said. At this moment, Lord Feverstone sprang to his feet, folded his arms, and looking straight at the old man, said in a very loud, clear voice, If Canon Jewel wishes us not to hear his views, I suggest his end could be better attained by silence. Jewel had been already an old man in the days before the First War when old men were treated with kindness, and he had never succeeded in getting used to the modern world. For a moment, as he stood with his head thrust forward, people thought he was going to reply. Then quite suddenly, he spread out his hands with a gesture of helplessness, shrunk back, and began laboriously to resume his chair. The motion was carried. So we're going to unpack a little bit of this. You may wonder, what in the world does that have to do with anything? But I will suggest to you that it has a lot to do with a lot of things that are very important right now. So first of all, the nice was the first fruit of that constructive fusion between the state and the laboratory on which so many thoughtful people base their hopes of a better world. In other words, hopes of a better world 
based on government and science as savior, based on an utterly secular worldview. And the issue with that, of course, is that when you completely leave God out of the equation and you believe that government is your savior, then what you want is more and more and more government. And when you fuse that with the laboratory, people who are unaccountable to anyone, um, really awful things can happen. And of course, Lewis is writing this not only prophetically, but thinking about what has been going on in Nazi Germany with eugenics and what the government is doing in exterminating whole groups of people, um, abrogating the rights of individuals, and pushing a narrative that is said to be true, but which is demonstrably false. So Lewis is saying the nice is dangerous, that it is um, the, the type of organization that is, uh, if you will, what scripture would call in the spirit of the Antichrist, that it is, it is that hideous strength. It is man saying, we don't need God. It goes right back to that idea from Nietzsche we talked about before of the ubermensch, the superman, who's progressed beyond God, doesn't need God anymore. Now, the scary thing about this is if you read Romans 1, um, and it talks about how the truth has been plain to people, and they ignore it and turn away from it, and then at some point there's that chilling line that says, God gave them over. We'll come back to that later. Um, the next thing Lewis talks about is that the nice has a special charter, we're going to hear more about this later, that frees it from almost all the tiresome restraints that prevent the government from really being able to do what it wants to do. Tiresome restraints like due process, individual liberties, ethics, the Tao. Just that the government, because it's the government, is of course wanting to do what's right and good, and if it has to run over individuals in the process, well, that's just too bad. Um, because for the nice to be successful, it has to be freed up from all of these constraints. So we have to let go of all of those um, values, the Tao, the things that have guided humanity and helped people know what's right and wrong. And then the building. I'm really going to restrain myself right here. Um, many of you know where I live, so I will just say no more about that. Um, an noticeable addition to the skyline of New York. Remember, this is a university village. There's certainly no building that is over three stories tall in this area. It is mostly medieval. It's built of stone. Um, the buildings, remember the, the last week we were talking about the, the green grass and the ivy and moss-clad walls and all of that. And then all of a sudden, you get a skyscraper stuck in the middle of it um, that not only is probably ugly on its own, but defaces not only the surrounding properties, but the entire skyline and vista of this area. So it's an enormous building. This is one that we're going to have some talks about architecture um, 
in the new year because Lewis is, talks a lot about architecture in this story because it is illustrative of what's going on in a culture. And I don't know how many of you have been to Italy or Germany um, and seen structures that were built by Hitler and Mussolini. And when you look at them, there's a very definite architectural style. And they are massive, oversized buildings, and they're designed to make you, as an individual, feel small and helpless. And that is not by accident. So this is an enormous building. It calls attention to itself, and it disrupts the ordered beauty and harmony of the college and town. So then this line about Mark Studdock thinking um, naively uh, that when he would go to a college meeting that they would actually debate ideas, that they would talk about the pros and cons of different ideas. They would look at the idea of sentiment or tradition versus progress and talk about the relative merits of these things and this particular proposal in light of that. They would talk about the value of preserving beauty versus utility and all of that, and it would be openly debated. But he learned that that was not the way they did things, that there's no debate. The ideas are not even put on the table, and claims about truth, beauty, and goodness can't even find a voice, nor can claims about right and wrong. And there's no understanding of logic. There's no progression of thought or no seeking after truth. It's just a way to manipulate people to achieve a preconceived result. That's what's going on. And that, uh, if you haven't ever watched a movie called Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, um, go back and watch that. It's an old Frank Capra movie uh, that is, once again, startlingly relevant. And then... Mark Studdock's cynical learning, where he says he learned that that was not the way things are done. That instead, the ends justify the means. That those who are in power, what Lewis called the conditioners in the abolition of man, those people decide what they think needs to happen. And because they are, in their own minds, superior, they know what you need better than you do. And so they are going to foist that upon you, and they're going to use the machinery of the college's processes to make that happen. Um, so the ends justify the means. And as Lewis says many times, and most profoundly in the screw tape letters, that devilry is most likely to be found in bureaucracy. And he says one of the great um, things the devil has been able to accomplish is to convince us that the devil is a little character in red tights with a tail and a pitchfork who's lurking around um, in dark corners wanting to jump out and say, I want to tempt you to do something evil. And we think that's the way Satan works. And we think, well, if I saw that, of course I would say, forget you, Satan. Uh, but Lewis says that's not the way Satan works. He says this. The greatest evil is not now done in those sordid dens of crime that Dickens loved to paint. It is not done even in concentration camps and labor camps. In those we see its final result. But it is conceived and ordered, moved, seconded, carried, and minuted in clean, 
carpeted, warmed, and well-lighted offices by quiet men with white collars and cut fingernails and smooth-shaven cheeks who do not need to raise their voices. Hence, naturally enough, my symbol for hell is something like the bureaucracy of a police state or the office of a thoroughly nasty business concern. Now, that is something that we should pay attention to. And you're going to see that that's exactly what Lewis is going to do. As we learn more about the nice, you will learn it is a thoroughly nasty business concern. And this faculty meeting just did exactly what Lewis described right there. They did it all in a very orderly way, and they didn't perhaps know exactly what they were doing because they were being manipulated, but it was all legal. And that, again, is something that Lewis is drawing from Nazi Germany because one of the things that is often surprising to people is that most of the really horrific things that the Nazis chose to do actually were voted on and passed by the German legislature, um, often presented in such a way that people probably didn't really know what they were voting for because of the doublespeak. So, um, and then this uh, part where they present the proposal and they say uh, it's not presented as sale of Bragdon Wood. The bursar called it the sale of the area colored pink. Disingenuous descriptions that obscure the truth and mislead anyone not paying the very closest attention. And our culture is just rife with this, rife with it. And I'm trying to avoid being political, but our culture is rife with this sort of thing. And, you know, things have been redefined in very, very peculiar ways. And one of the um, really sad things with this is just watching the terminology that is used when you look at the issue of abortion. And you, you hear babies, not just called fetuses, but products of conception or you know, all sorts of anything to call uh, it something other than a human life, a human baby. So Lewis is saying this kind of sloppy use of language is very, very dangerous. So then uh, we see that as all of these problems, the bursar has painted all of these problems that are so terrible for the college and the poor junior fellows are going to be like Bob Cratchit at Christmas with no food on the table uh, because the college is running out of money. And then all of a sudden, here comes the nice riding in on its white horse, ready to pay millions and millions and millions of dollars for this wood that the college is not even using and is facing big repair cost for. And so this quite astonishing figure, that ought to give someone pause. If somebody's trying to pay you way more than something's worth, it might make you think they're up to something. But that doesn't seem to cross anyone's mind. And part of the issue is that we live in a culture where greed and materialism are rampant. Uh, greed used to be considered one of the seven deadly sins. And you were supposed to think about greed and repent of greed in your life. But more and more, greed is actually positively encouraged 
in many aspects of our culture. And monetary gain is often the chief lens for decision making. And you see this very sadly in that survey that's done of entering university freshmen each year in the United States. And up through um, the 60s and 70s, uh, and even the early 80s, probably at least 70% of students said that they were coming to the university because they wanted to learn how to live a good life. They wanted to make a positive difference in the world. They wanted to help others. And then in the 80s, there was this switch. And that curve of the people that said that all of a sudden turned and started going straight downhill. And the curve of people that said, I want to go to college because I want to get a good job where I can make lots of money. And that is now like 80 to 90 percent. Um, and it's the idea that money equals happiness, which study after study after study has shown is not true, uh, but that is where the culture is. So then the next point that Lewis makes, the few real diehards present to whom Bragdon Wood was almost a basic assumption of life could hardly bring themselves to realize what was happening. This is a particularly important point. Uh, what Lewis is saying here is that in eras of rapid change, uh, conservatives, and I don't mean conservative politically, but people that are not progressives, um, can easily be blindsided because they expect that the foundations that have been part of their culture and worldview are going to endure. It does not occur to them that things that seem like part of the fabric of their life and their existence could ever go away. Those are things that are always going to be there. And what they are not aware of very often is that these foundations can be progressively and slowly undermined. And that as you begin to undermine those foundations, the ground that those foundations are built on is eroding and so they cannot stand, and that there's a concerted campaign very often to turn the tide against them. And this is exactly what Lewis is getting at in The Abolition of Man. And yet when you start reading that, you think, why is he picking on a grammar book for high school students? But what he's saying is that if you allow these little things to go wrong, if you allow these little errors that don't seem like that big a deal the cumulative effect, once you have unleashed that, is that you're going to undermine the entire foundation of Western civilization. And that's the whole point of the abolition of man. And we are in many ways seeing a lot of what Lewis predicted coming true. And so part of, part of what he's saying here is that the people in the college, there were people in the college who wanted to do the right thing who understood the value of Bragdon Wood. There were people in the college who were real scholars, who were seeking after beauty, truth, and goodness. People who were deeply intellectual, people that were always trying to do the right thing and living quiet and purposeful lives. But the problem is they were asleep at the switch, very much like that verse that we talked about at the beginning, awake, O sleeper, because when they were asleep, all of these things were gradually happening, 
And then all of a sudden they wake up and the idea of selling Bragdon Wood is on the table, something they couldn't even imagine could ever happen. And just as a little aside, there is a lot of this going on in Charleston right now, just in the um, architecture of what's going on in the city. Most people who, even if they're not from here, even if they visited here, notice that the skyline of Charleston looks remarkably different. And people always thought that could never happen in Charleston because Charleston was the place that the first historic preservation ordinance happened, the place where there was the first National Register Historic District, that in all places the Historic District of Charleston couldn't have these kinds of things happen. But they have happened. And it is um, not necessarily anyone in particular's fault that they have happened, but part of it is that people have been asleep and thinking, well, that couldn't happen here, and then it did, and then they didn't know what to do. So part of the, part of the idea of this is that it's important to be awake. It's important to be aware what's going on around you. It's important to understand issues that are going on in the world, and it's important to try to speak truth into those. So, and then this next point is another really important one. They were maneuvered, that is, the people that were the old guard who loved the college and loved Bagdon Wood. They were maneuvered into the position of appearing as the party who passionately desired to see Bragdon Wood surrounded with barbed wire, which of course was totally ridiculous. That was not what they wanted to do at all, but they were maneuvered into, they were caricatured as something other than what they were. And because they didn't have the ability um, to fight back, they, they were stuck with this mischaracterization um, that was put on them. So the problem is that groups often have their views spun and misrepresented by an opposition that plays by different rules and is unafraid of slander or outright falsehoods in the pursuit of their aims, creating a straw man. And we'll talk more about straw man later, but straw man, if you're not familiar with that concept, is that um, you're attacking something that's not even what the real position is. It's just something that's been put out there um, as a target. So, uh, Canon Jewel, poor Canon Jewel, uh, this old man, uh, courtly, brilliant, who had devoted his life to the college. If Canon Jewel wishes us not to hear his views, I suggest that his end could be better attained by silence. This is meant to be a shockingly rude and disrespectful statement coming from Lord Feverstone, the peer that the British aristocrat who's supposed to know better and supposed to be an exemplar, but instead he is being cruel to this old clergyman. And so part of the thing that Lewis is trying to get at here is that without open debate and a quest for truth based in the rules of logic, insults and ad hominem attacks become a substitute for discourse and seeking to reach a decision. Then instead of debating or asking Canon Jewel to say 
more slowly or asking people to be quiet so they could hear what he was saying. They just attack him as a hopeless old fool. And unfortunately, that is the level of a lot of the discourse in our country, and not just ours, in many countries right now. And then the days before the first war when old men were treated with kindness. Civility and public discourse is viewed by so many people today as a quaint relic. And wisdom and experience are discounted in favor of what is new or bold or innovative. And Lewis is trying to tell us that civility and public discourse is important. That if you believe in truth, beauty, and goodness, you have to have some rules about how to talk with each other so that you can pursue truth. And if that just breaks down into the law of the jungle, uh, you are not going to be able to get anywhere. So that brings us, uh, sorry if that was really depressing, uh, that brings us to some practices of hope and wisdom. And uh, it was really wonderful that this verse happened to be our scripture lesson in the service tonight. So let's say this together. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So a couple of practices. The first is to seek after truth and practice the scriptural admonition to speak the truth in love. Part of the problem in our culture is that sometimes we may feel like we want to boldly speak the truth, but we want to do that in a way that is utterly unloving. Or we may want to speak in a very loving way, but we shade the truth or don't address the truth when we do that. And part of the power of the Christian faith is that we are called to speak the truth in love, to speak it in humility, not in arrogance, but to speak the truth, to speak up, not to just think the truth, but to speak the truth, but to do it in a loving way. And this is from Ephesians 4. That whole Ephesians 4 chapter is well worth reading and meditating on. But this particular verse says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. And this is a very different kind of head than the head and that hideous strength. We are to grow up into the head who is Christ who directs the whole body. The second thing is that as Christians, we are to love God with our minds. And I think part of what that means is as Christians, we need to learn the basics of logic so that we can recognize fallacies and poor arguments so that we are not led astray. We are told to be wise. Remember in our verse we say not to walk as unwise, but as wise. And unfortunately, um, how many of y'all took logic when you were in school? So a few of us did. Um, I would really encourage you to get this little book that's called The Fallacy Detective. Um, this is a book that is designed for um, students who are probably around age 12. Um, it's part of a homeschool curriculum, but it's really good, and it, it addresses every fallacy that there is. 
And if you read this book and then watch the news, it will just totally blow your mind um, because there's just fallacy after fallacy after fallacy. And of course, a fallacy is a classically understood uh, problem with an argument that, that breaks the rules of logic where it doesn't, uh, the argument doesn't hold water if it has a fallacy in it. So I would commend that little book to you. Don't, don't feel, because it has a, like a detective dog with a magnifying glass on the cover, don't be embarrassed, don't be embarrassed. But it, I think it is actually something very helpful. Um, the third thing is to resist being conformed to the world in the way that you regard others and speak of them, especially those with whom you profoundly disagree. Let me say that again. Resist being conformed to the world in the way that you regard others and speak of them, especially those with whom you profoundly disagree and contemplate scripture on this point. One of the things that is the power of the Christian gospel is that we are to live differently than the culture. And when we fall into the trap of vilifying and demonizing people that we disagree with, people who are made in the image of God who may be profoundly misled, but if we demonize them and speak evil of them, then Satan is having a field day with us. So consider some of these verses. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Christianity is the only faith on offer that has that as a core tenet. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That is why Christianity is the only hope in a culture that is so divided the way our culture is today. We are the only people that have the hope of the gospel who can build bridges. The second, do not let any, any, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand as you think about all the words that came out of your mouth today and whether they meet that standard or not. Uh, but it is a standard that we need to think about because that, that is a command of Scripture. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And then from Romans, this famous passage, repay no one evil for evil. That means that we should expect to have evil done to us. We should expect that we're going to be treated wrongly, that there will be evil done to us. But we are not to retaliate in kind. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought, now that's a radical concept, give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, 
you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And then lastly, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Now that is a very high standard of speech. And one of the things you're going to see that's so interesting, and one of the reasons I love this book, is that Lewis has people in this story where evil is being done to them. Great evil that's destroying their town, that's destroying their relationships, that's destroying their country. And yet, the people, he has some people who don't model a very good way of responding to that, but he has other people who model, I think, exactly a scriptural way of dealing with that kind of situation. And I think there's so much for us to learn from that today. So, and then fourthly, uh, going back to that song that we were listening to at the beginning, I'm sorry if you don't like Anglican choral music, because <laughs> you're going to get a lot of it in this class. Uh, but I think it is, it is a really important resource that can help us lean into the truth of God's word and lean into beauty, truth, and goodness. So that anthem, which was first sung on Easter Day in 1853, the text is straight out of Scripture. And it's the King James Version. But just listen to these words. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. See that you love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof faileth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. That is strong medicine. And it's truth, and the music makes it that much better, because that whole part of love one another with a pure heart fervently is that just gorgeous treble solo. And then right at the end, all that part about the flesh is grass, the basses are singing that, sort of rumbling along. And then all of a sudden it just stops, and there's this huge chord that's like, I don't know how they play it, because I think it's about 15 notes, and nobody has that many fingers. And all of a sudden, the organ goes to full blast, and there's this bonk, and then you get the word of the Lord endureth forever, and it just builds and builds and builds and so until it's as loud as the choir can get. And it is a great and important truth for us to remember that when we're passed, when we're placed among things, that are passing away, that we do have a sure and certain hope that the word of the Lord does endure forever, that there is a salvation 
that is undefiled, incorruptible, that fadeth not away, that is reserved in heaven for us. So with that, uh, let's say our verse again. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the fact that we do have an inheritance that fadeth not away, that is incorruptible, that is based on the power of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and is reserved in heaven for us. And Lord, as we walk our earthly pilgrimage, we pray that you would save us from despair and that you would fill us with hope and love and that we would hold out the gospel of life to this broken and hurting world that so desperately needs you. Lord, we pray that as we go into this break for the rest of Advent and Christmas season, that you would fire our hearts with wonder as we look to the miracle of your incarnation coming into this world as a helpless baby born to die to save us and bring us back into relationship with you. Lord, we pray for your blessing and protection over this break, that you would help us to grow in wisdom and faith and knowledge during this time. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for coming, and I hope you have a wonderful Advent and Christmas season, and uh, 